Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Good morning. Our aim now is to have a look at... uh, what some of the heroes of old have said about the heart. And our focus is going to be on the Reformation. Now, uh, just a little warning, we're going to get to see Luther in fight mode. So we're going to get some 18 certificate theology. Anyone of a nervous disposition, feel free to leave. Now, what Luther and the Reformers saw was that dealing rightly with the heart is essential to true reformation. But before we can hang out with Martin, we need a little bit of context. The church in Luther's day had really soaked up Aristotle. Aristotle had got in in all sorts of ways. And Aristotle, in his ethics, had famously said, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds. And this became a kind of fake-it-till-you-make-it ethics. So you work at outward, external acts of righteousness, and by repetition of those righteous acts, you will become righteous. So let's just imagine a uh, very hypothetical situation. I'm going to stress this is hypothetical. Let's say I hate grannies. I loathe them. Just the very sight of a granny makes me want to shove her under a juggernaut. Now, I know that as a Christian, that's not ideal. So, I go to my pastor, Pastor Aristotle, and he says, I'll translate, you become, you become a granny lover by granny loving deeds. So, help ten grannies cross the road every day and in one month, granny lover. Convinced? There's absolutely no notion that their slowness might actually frustrate me and feed my hatred. Is there? No. Do the deeds and you will change. Now, Martin Luther lived under this You become righteous by doing righteous deeds theology for years. And what he found was that bit by bit, it drove him to hate God. Oh, he'd do the outward righteous deeds to get the heaven, but it wasn't making him righteous, upright in heart, full of love for the Lord. In himself, What he found was resentment snowballing for this righteous deeds demanding God. So change from the outside in, mere effort, wasn't working. And in 1517, he decided to take on Aristotle. This was just a few weeks before his more famous 95 theses. He wrote his 97 theses. Are you ready for the Wittenberg hammer? 
from the 97 Theses. Luther says, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. Virtually the entire ethics of Aristotle is the worst enemy of grace. It's an error to say no man can become a theologian without Aristotle. Indeed, no one can become a theologian unless he becomes one without Aristotle. Speak your mind, Luther. (laughs) Briefly, the whole Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light. The grace of God, however, makes righteousness abound through Jesus Christ because it causes one to be pleased with the law. Do you see internal change? The good law and that in which one lives is the love of God spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the way we change is not from the outside in by our behavior making us righteous. True change comes from the inside as the Spirit changes our hearts. Now, nobody really picked up on the 97 Theses. By themselves, they didn't really cause much of a stir. But then, a few years later, the greatest scholar of the day, the Greek New Testament editor Erasmus, saw what this theology was doing. And he felt that Luther had overspiced his argument. Now, surely he thought, no, 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 no. We all have the freedom, the ability to do righteous deeds and so make ourselves a little bit more righteous. And so Erasmus wrote a work against Luther entitled The Freedom of the Will. Now, this was foolish of Erasmus. In the immortal words of Mr. T, I pity the fool who takes on Luther. Luther didn't usually respond to attacks on his theology. When they were shown to him, he'd take them and use them as loo paper. But this was the respected Erasmus, and so he read it. And soon you could hear the sound of theological howitzers being loaded up. Erasmus had written The Freedom of the Will. The next year, Luther published The Bondage of the Will. And amid much amusing rudeness, he said, Erasmus, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute. This is the heart of the Reformation. You've not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles, for trifles they are rather than basic issues, without which, with, with which almost everyone hitherto has gone hunting for me without success. You, Erasmus, and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot for which I sincerely thank you. (laughs) And the book is then a machine-gunning of Erasmus with Bible verses to prove you cannot decide to love God. We are simply not free in that way. Now, at this point, people commonly misunderstand Luther. They think, the bondage of the will? Are you saying, Luther, that I can't do what I want? But 
I do what I want every day. My will seems very free. But no, Luther is saying, sure, you always do what you want. We freely choose to do the things we do. But you cannot choose what to love. You cannot say, hmm, should I love that or that? We're just not impassive in that way. Faced with a choice, bacon, celery. I cannot make an impassive choice. I find I prefer and lean towards one rather than the other. You do what you want, but you cannot choose what to want. And in that sense, my will is bound. For there is something underneath my will, something underneath my choices, driving them. And that, says Luther, is the heart with its affections. Now, this is going to be a key word for us. When Luther talks about our affections, he means our inclinations, our desires, how we lean towards certain things. And those inclinations drive what choices we make. So, at lunch, there will be a whole range of sandwiches, and I'll be free to make my choice, I think, but my decision will be driven by what I like bacon, celery, by my desires. So the root of the human problem, said Luther, is not our outward misbehavior. It is what he calls our corrupt affections, wicked desires that drive wicked choices and behavior. Now, he's thinking of verses like Ephesians 2, 3, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh, and thus were by nature children of wrath. Or James 1, 14. Do you remember that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his desire. And when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This was going to be key for Luther and the theologians and pastors of the Reformation. The heart must be dealt with, not merely our outward behavior. Our hearts drive our decisions. For something key about the heart is that the heart is the seat of our desires, our affections. Now let me just uh, rattle off some of the sort of verses that Luther turns to here. I'm going to go through them really fast. Psalm 21.2, you've granted him the desires of his heart. Psalm 37.4, this is a tricky little verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs 6.25, do not desire the beauty of the immoral woman in your heart, unless she's your wife, I assume. But you see the connection between the desire in the heart. Job 31.7, if my heart has been led by my eyes, in other words, if I've desired what I saw. Matthew 6.21, 
this is probably the verse of verses here, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Romans 1.24 God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Romans 10.1 Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they might be saved. 1 Corinthians 4.5 He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. It's not the desire word there, but you see a similar thing. Motives, planning, desire. 1 Corinthians 10.6, last one. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Desiring evil things. And that's how Proverbs 16.9 In his heart a man plans his course. It is the heart with its desires, affections and inclinations that drives our decisions. And so said Luther, a man without the Spirit of God doesn't do evil against his will under pressure, as though you're taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged to it. That's not what the bondage of the will means. No, we sin. Why? Because we like sin. Because of our corrupt affections. Now, here's where the rubber's going to start hitting the road for pastoral ministry. Because our course is planned and set in our hearts. That means the harder you strive, the more you do, the harder you will strive in the direction set by your heart and no other. And since naturally we do not want or desire God, a person can strive all they want to be holy. But given the direction of their heart, all they are doing is digging themselves deeper into self-dependence, self-worship, self-righteousness. And thus, Luther says, every deed of the law without the grace of God appears righteous outwardly, Inwardly, it is sin. Trying to change people simply by changing their outward behavior is like thinking you can change a pig just by washing it. You can wash a pig, but it's still a pig. The only solution for us piggish sinners is for God, by his gospel, to change our hearts, that deep grain and inclination within us, our orientation to make us want differently. True change can only come from there. Now, this was precisely what Luther had found for himself. He'd worked very hard as a monk. All that external effort led him to say, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God. 
And it was only through the gospel of God's loving and free grace that his heart was changed. And he found now he could love God and want God and choose God heartily. And so what we've got here in Luther and Erasmus is two very different visions of what Christianity is. For Erasmus, Christianity is basically a business deal. So sin is really just a bad choice. Salvation is a good choice to do good things. But for Luther, with this heart emphasis, it is all different. It just doesn't look like that at all. Sin is something way deeper. It's not just a bad choice to disobey God. No, that choice has roots in the heart. So, why did Adam and Eve sin? Because they desired the fruit. Because they desired to be like God. So their act of sin, that outward act of sin, was simply a manifestation of what was going on in their hearts. That they loved, they set their desire, their heart on something else other than the Lord. It is Mark 7, from within from the heart of man that sin comes. And salvation? Again, for Luther, it is much deeper. And again, it is about relationship. It is about having our hearts won back that we might not simply make a good choice to obey God, but find that we truly love God the Lord our God, and therefore obey. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is the great new covenant promise. New hearts. Not that we might simply act aright. Not that we might simply think aright even, but that we might desire aright and have the Lord as our treasure. Now, that difference between Luther and Erasmus would mean two very different sorts of pastoring. The two sorts of pastoring, in fact, that we heard about this morning. For Erasmus, right behavior is the thing. And right behavior is something he thought everyone is quite capable of. Everyone has a free will, right? So everyone's capable of right behavior. So, here's the question. Why are the people in your church not more godly? Erasmus, why? Well, the reason, the only reason can be, why are they not more godly? Because they're not trying hard enough. What sort of ministry do you think Pastor Erasmus is going to have? If the reason 
that his congregation are not godly enough is they're simply not trying hard enough. What's his ministry going to look like? Ouch. A lot of scolding. A scolding-centric ministry. But when you believe in the bondage of the will, when you have Luther's heart concern, your compassion leaps forward. For, you see, people need more. They need their hearts dealt with and turned. And to see what that would look like, let me give you a couple of examples of how Luther explained it. First example is from his preface to Romans, which uh, John Wesley said so affected him. I think he actually got his facts wrong, but um, he said it was this that affected him. Luther says, How shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart? What a fascinating thing to say. How shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart? In other words, what does that mean for a pastor? It means you cannot beat people into holiness. No, to fulfill the law, he says, is to do its works with pleasure and love. This pleasure and love is put into the heart by the Holy Spirit. He's thinking of Romans 5.5. God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not given except in, with, and by faith in Jesus Christ. And faith comes through God's word or gospel which preaches Christ. So, the way that hearts are turned from their love of sin to true love for God is by preaching Christ. By holding out his glory and perfection so that eyes are opened and hearts won so that people see what he's like and cry, ah, my Lord and my God. One more from Luther. This is his treatise on good works, which is all about how the gospel fuels good works. And he says, look here. (laughs) Don't you just love that? Go, Marty. Look here. This is how you must cultivate Christ in yourself. There's a challenge extended to all author friends. See if you could put look here in your next book. Look here. This is how you must cultivate Christ in yourself. Faith must spring up and flow from the blood and wounds and death of Christ. If you see in these that God is so kindly disposed to you, that he even gives his own son for you, then your heart must grow sweet and disposed toward God. Again, he's saying the solution to our natural heart problem, the means by which not just our behavior, but hearts are turned, desires and inclinations changed, is the message of Christ and him crucified. When eyes are opened by that message to just how unfathomably kind, gracious he is, we start to see 
or remember that he is better than anything else. And so our hearts are moved to want him more than anything else. I'm afraid the time has come to bid au revoir to Luther. I know, I know. But we cross the channel to Merry England and the Puritans, the Merry Puritans. Now, I know, I know. Now, the Puritans were those who wanted to continue and prosper Luther's work of reformation in the church. They wanted a reformed church overflowing with members whose own hearts had been reformed. And so in the Puritans, you see a group of pastors and theologians who were deeply concerned with the hearts of their people, who in many ways saw themselves as heart doctors. And what that meant in the Puritans was a group of pastors concerned with what their people loved, concerned with what their inclinations were, concerned with where the affections of their people ran. They wanted to ask, do these people love the Lord heartily or are they merely nominal? Simply knowing and acting out the Christian life. And such things were essential for a pastor to consider, said John Owen. For he said, affections, and he's using the word in just the same way as Luther to speak of our inclinations, our desires. Affections are in the soul as the helm in the ship. Affections are in the soul as the helm in the ship. If it be laid hold on by a skillful hand, he turneth the whole vessel which way he pleaseth. Or Richard Sibbs, yes. Richard Sibbs says, Let us examine what our desires are, what our bent is. Can I just pause for a moment and ask my friend, when did you last examine what your desires are? And maybe just scribble a note to yourself to think later in privacy, what is it you most deeply desire? It's very revealing. What do you desire? For, said Sibs, the bent and sway of the soul shows what a man is. Beetles delight in dirt and swine in mire. The fish in the sea, spiritual things, are the element of a Christian, so far as he is a Christian. And that is his ubi, his where, his place, the place that he delights in. Not just the place where he happens to spend time, the place his inclinations run after, the place he delights in. Now, I hope you sense it. Since these men 
sought to get under their listeners' behavior and deal with their hearts, their affections, their desires, their preaching and ministry, and you can still feel it if you read them, was deeply penetrative and probing. Deeply. They knew that merely to alter a person's behavior without dealing with the inner desires of the heart would simply cultivate hypocrisy. An outward show that looks godly, a self-righteous cloak for an unchanged, cold, vicious heart. The outward is easy, said Sibs, and subject to hypocrisy. But God will not be served so. He must have the inward affections, or else, else he does abhor, hate the outward actions. True love for the Lord, and not just a desire for his blessing. True hatred for sin, and not just hatred of its consequences. That's what Sibs sought. Now, that's a tall order. How? How could that happen? How could we, who so cherish our sin, how could we come to hate it and love the one who takes us from it? How? Well, I must here hand the mic over to Sibzi himself. He says, I am sure nothing will melt the hard heart of a man but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Saviour. When a man considers the love that God has showed in sending his Son, giving us Christ, setting us free from hell, sin and death, this melts the heart and makes it become tender. And so he says, as when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt, so bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. If you will have this tender and melting heart, I love this phrase, be always under the sunshine of the gospel constantly within earshot of the message of the blood of Christ. That is the solution for our cold and hard hearts. The warming news, the great good news, the sunshine of the gospel. Sibs had a great young contemporary called Thomas Goodwin. And he once said to him this, young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Sibs meant that with every fibre of his being, for he saw that it is the free grace of God in Christ Jesus that is the message that first turns the hearts of sinners to God. And it is the message of the free grace of God in Christ Jesus 
that continues to turn the wavering, fickle hearts of believers back to God. Away from love of sin to true love for this lovely and loving God. Now, Sibs was quite clear. This is the heart of true reformation. You can have superficial reformation and outward change, but true reformation must begin in the heart with love for Christ. And that love can only come when the free grace of God in Christ Jesus is proclaimed. I know, um, quite rightly, I would get lynched. Absolutely rightly, if I didn't at least mention Jonathan Edwards here. Let's move on to him. Jonathan Edwards, one of Britain's greatest ever theologians. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he lived in um, some colony somewhere, I forget its name. But in the early, mid-18th century, Edwards, he wasn't really a Puritan, but he managed to distill much of the very best of Puritans thought on this and much else. And on this area, he did it in his titanic work, The Religious Affections. The thesis of that work is this. True religion, in great part, consists in... How interesting to try to fill in that. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. Now, let me try to give you an example of what he means. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. This is um, from elsewhere in his writings, from his treatise on grace. He says, The devil, the devil once seemed to be religious in Luke 8. When... He saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God Most High? Here, says Edwards, is external worship. The devil is religious. He prays. He prays in a humble posture. He falls down before Christ. He lies prostrate. He prays earnestly. He cries with a loud voice. He uses respectful, honourable, adoring expressions, calling him Jesus, thou Son of God Most High. Nothing was lacking, says Edwards, but love. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. He's seeing devils and saints know the gospel. The difference is in their affections. Now, I find Edwards particularly helpful in all this in two ways. Two ways. First, he sees If true religion is a matter, first and foremost, of the heart and its loves, then we must be very careful 
to be clear on what the Christian should love. And Edwards is magnificently, if a little painfully, clear. He says, true believers primarily love God himself. They do not primarily love what they can get from him. Grace, heaven. That, he's seeing, is actually a religious form of self-love. Sin, using God. I find that quite painful. Second, Edwards is clear that concern for the affections, and you can see he has a high concern, is not about emotionalism. It will not entail emotional manipulation. He distinguishes between what he calls passions or emotions, which are very fickle, often quite superficial things. That's that's not to speak ill of them. They have a right place, but they are fickle and superficial. He distinguishes them from these deeper affections or inclinations, which are about the grain of the heart, your deepest tendencies. So, music and chocolate can affect your emotions, but they can't do so much for this deeper grain of your heart. And those inclinations, that deep grain and tendency of your heart, Edward says, can only be altered by something substantial, the knowledge of Christ. So he says, I think this sums up so much, holy affections are not heat without light. Holy affections are not heat without light. Evermore they arise from some information of the understanding, some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light or actual knowledge. So it is by the proclamation of the truth, by the light, that the heat in our hearts will and must come. Let me show you one more hero. One more hero who had a profound insight on how the heart works and thus how ministers should preach and pastor. Now, this wasn't a new insight at all. It was an old Reformation one, but he put it very clearly. Who was he? Thomas Chalmers, the early 19th century living fire from the Tron in Glasgow. One sermon of his put it best. The sermon was called the expulsive power of a new affection. And in this sermon he asked, how is it possible to stop loving the world? How can we do that? By an act of willpower? Man up. No, he says, he didn't use those words. 
that is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. For nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by, apart from, the expulsive, the expelling power, the eclipsing power of a new one. So we cannot choose what we love. We always love what seems most desirable to us. So we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable than what I currently love. So, I will always love sin and the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And affection for Christ, as I see that he is more desirable, eclipses affection for sin. And that's what preachers aim at. They make Christ known that hearts are turned to love him more than anything else. Now, Chalmers' insight is important in two very fundamental ways. It's important in evangelism. We must speak of Christ such that people want it to be true. Their affections are drawn and they want to engage. They see how desirable Christ and knowing him is. Secondly, it is key in discipleship. For people can't simply squelch their old affections for sin. You cannot go through your life idol-whacking, saying, by mere willpower, I will no longer bow down to that idol. Get rid of that demon and seven even more evil will come straight back in. No. Corrupt affections must be expelled by a superior desire for Christ. Christ must take their throne, eclipse them, replace them. To close, the question of the heart was an essential element in the Reformation and the pastoral practice of the Reformers and their heirs. Now, I think there's a great challenge for us here. For us ministers to be concerned, not just that people understand, not just that people act, but that they have holy affections, that they love the Lord, that they have him as their treasure, and that we do too. But there is also here great comfort for the gospel that we proclaim is the power of God for that deepest reformation of the heart. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do not simply call us to know about you or behave for you. By your Spirit, you open our eyes and you draw us to love you, to enjoy you. And so we pray, would you make us a people who proclaim the free grace of God in Christ Jesus to ourselves that we might not be hypocrites and to the world that we might have the joy of being your faithful co-workers. In Jesus' most glorious name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy.